Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Saturday, uh, November the 5th, uh, 2022. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal. Worldwide radio broadcast. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the bombing uh, by the Pentagon's United States Africa Command, AFRICOM, of Somalia earlier in the week. Ethiopia diasporans are playing a critical role in the ongoing struggle to maintain the national unity and sovereignty of the Horn of Africa state. The COP27 climate summit that will be taking place later in the month in the North African state of Egypt. We'll have a detailed report on that as well. And uh, the new right-wing government in Italy uh, has closed ports to migrants uh, crossing the Mediterranean. In the second hour, we look at the recently released Richard Wright novel entitled The Man Who Lived Underground, uh, which was banned from publication during uh, the 1940s. We hear his daughter, Julia Wright, discuss the significance of releasing the novel during this time period. Finally, we look back on the racist murders of Emmett Till and Lewis Allen during the 1950s and 1960s simultaneously in the state of Mississippi. This retrospective is being conducted in light of the release of the feature film Till in the United States. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. Uh, We'll listen uh, in our musical interlude uh, to the music of the African kings. Pili, Pili, let's listen in.
malo, malo.
Welcome back. And uh, that was the sound of uh, the African kings, Pile Pile, uh, from uh, the Republic of Congo, Brazzaville. Uh, that album released uh, in 1976. And right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswise segment. Our lead story uh, deals with the announcement that the United States military uh, says it has carried out an airstrike in support of the Somalia government's operation against the Al-Shabaab group uh, that has uh, killed some of the uh, organization's fighters. Now, a statement by the U.S. Africa Command uh, earlier today uh, describes the airstrike as being carried out on Thursday in collective self-defense and at the request of the Somalia National Army near the town of Kadali in the middle Shabil region. Uh, Kadali is 220 kilometers, approximately 137 miles north of the capital of Mogadishu. The U.S. statement says al-Shabaab fighters had been attacking Somalia military forces. It says the initial assessment is that no civilians were killed. The U.S. has carried out dozens of drone strikes against uh, the al-Shabaab and other groups in Somalia uh, over the last decade and a half. And also in the Horn of Africa, the Ethiopian uh, diaspora uh, did play a significant role in regards to the success of the signing of the recent peace agreement between the federal government and the TPLF. And that's according to Defend Ethiopia Task Force and the Diaspora Belgium Community Coordinator Ephraim Zaidu. Uh, in an exclusive interview with the Ethiopian news agency, the coordinator stated that the diaspora, in collaboration with the people and government of Ethiopia, has placed a, a significant role for the signing of the peace deal. The diaspora community across the world have been engaged in public diplomacy and informing world leaders, especially in Brussels, uh, which is the seat of the European Union, the Commission, the External Action Service in the Council, and many international institutions, as well as multilateral institutions, Ephraim said. So we have been fortunate to inform them and request them to support efforts by the Ethiopian people to bring peace and stability to Ethiopia. According to him, the immediate task of the diaspora should now be supporting the implementation of the peace deal. Uh, we have to play a constructive role for this great deal, which is in the interest of the entire Ethiopian people. He also pointed out that the diaspora is ready to mobilize resources to support affected communities by the conflict in Tigray, Afars, and Amhara regions. The diaspora needs uh, to engage uh, from the disinformation campaign against uh, the peace deal, Ephraim noted, uh, added uh, that uh, they would rather support the implementation of the peace agreement. The coordinator also said that the diaspora community is excited by the peace agreement as peace has got the chance to prevail in Ethiopia with the interests of the Ethiopian people and Tigrayan brothers as well. We are happy. We are celebrating. Peace should get the chance to prevail in our country. It is in the interest of the Ethiopian people to have peace and Tigrayan brothers who are part of the Ethiopian people. So we are watching for the implementation of the peace agreement. Noting that the government of Ethiopia has made a lot of efforts to reach at this point, the coordinator pointed out, the Ethiopian diaspora has been engaged in defending Ethiopia because the war has been an all-out war media campaign to tarnish the image of the Ethiopian people and the government of Ethiopia. The Ethiopian people and government are always committed for peace. He stressed Ephraim called the, on the TPLF to ensure peace through swift implementation of the deal 
including disarmament, and it is in the interest of the Tigrayan people and the entire Ethiopian people. And other news uh, in regard uh, to uh, the recent uh, peace deal between uh, the central government in Ethiopia and the TPLF, uh, officials close to peace talks aimed at ending Ethiopia's deadly two-year conflict uh, confirmed uh, the full text of the signed accord on Thursday. But a key question remains. What led Tigray regional leaders to agree to terms that include rapid disarmament and full federal government control? A day after the warning sides uh, signed a permanent session of hostilities and a war that is believed to have killed thousands of people, none of the negotiators were talking about how they arrived at the deal. The complete agreement has not been made public, but the official confirmed that a copy obtained by uh, the international press was the final document. They spoke on condition of anonymity because they weren't authorized to discuss it publicly. At Wednesday signing, the lead negotiator for Tigray uh, side described it as a containing painful concessions. One of the PAC priorities is to swiftly disarm Tigray forces of heavy weapons and take away their light weapons within 30 days. Senior commanders on both sides are to meet within five days. Ethiopian security forces will take full control of all federal facilities, installations, and major infrastructure within the Tigray region. An interim regional administration will be established after dialogue between the parties, the accord says. The terrorist designation for the Tigray People's Liberation Party will be lifted. If implemented, the agreement should mark an end to the devastating conflict in Africa's second most populous country. Millions of people have been displaced and many left near famine under a blockade of the Tigray region of more than 5 million people. Abuses have been documented on all sides. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed asserted that his government received everything it asked for in the peace talks. During the negotiation in South Africa, Ethiopia's peace proposal has been accepted 100%, and the government is ready to open our hearts for peace to prevail, Abiy said in a speech. He added that the issue of contested areas seen as one of the most difficult will be resolved only through the law of the land and negotiations. Neither Ethiopian's government nor Tigray negotiators responded to questions. As part of the full agreement, both sides agreed not to make any unilateral statement that would undermine it. The deal also calls for the immediate secession of all forms of hostile propaganda, rhetoric, and hate speech. The conflict has been marked by language that the U.S. Special Envoy, Mike Hammer, who helped with the peace deal, has described as having a high level of toxicity. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswatch segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, uh, the COP27 uh, United Nations Climate uh, Summit is going to be taking place in Egypt uh, in a few days. Working and tourism have been sent home uh, from Sharm el-Sheikh. Those who stay need special security cards. Vacationers have been turned back at security checkpoints surrounding the town. Hotel rates have increased tenfold, pricing out many. Local workers are prevented from speaking freely with visitors. In a country where protests are virtually banned, the government has set up a specific venue for climate protests, except no one is quite sure where it is. Notifications are required 36 hours in advance. 
Egypt's foreign ministry did not respond to requests for comments uh, in past statements. Officials have pledged to allow protests and participation from activists. As COP27 approaches, Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi's government has counted its efforts to make Sharm el-Sheikh a more eco-friendly city with new solar panels and electric vehicles. From the beginning, there was a big question mark on the choice of Egypt as a host country, said one Egyptian activist who was detained uh, for over two years without trial during the government's crackdown on dissent. He spoke on conditions of anonymity, fearing he could be rearrested. They know that the choice of Sharm means there won't be any protests. The scene is likely to be a sharp contrast to COP26 last year in Glasgow, Scotland, where some 100,000 people marched through the streets in one rally and protesters massed frequently in public squares, parks, and bridges. And uh, finally, the newly elected far-right Italian government adopted a measure yesterday formalizing the closure of its ports to rescue ships run by humanitarian groups as four vessels with more than a thousand migrants continue to press for a safe port. Interior Minister Matteo Piantedosi told reporters Italy would allow a German migrant rescue ship to arrive in Sicily to land miners and those with medical emergencies. But he said the ship must then return to international waters with the rest of the migrants. Pian Tedosi uh, said the German flag humanity won, carrying 179 people, forced the situation by entering into territorial waters. He emphasized Italy's position that it is the flag country of each charity-operated ship that must intervene to provide a safe point and not Italy. The fate of the other ships was not addressed, but Pian Tedosi said France had indicated it could accept the possibility to disembark the Norway flag ocean Viking, which had 234 people aboard. Humanity One was on its way to the Sicilian port of Cantania, Pian Tedosi said, adding it would be allowed to remain in Italian waters only long enough to disembark minors and people needing medical care. It came after France and Germany asked Italy's new government to grant safe port to more than 1,000 people rescued by humanitarian groups in the central Mediterranean, some of whom have been stuck at sea for more than two weeks. The posture adopted by Premier Giorgia Maloney's new government marks a return to the anti-NGO position adopted by Matteo Salvini now a deputy premier when he was interior minister during 2018 and 2019. Alvini, currently the infrastructure minister in charge of ports, welcomed the new decree in a Facebook post. It would ensure that foreign ships cannot arrive solely in Italy with their illegal immigrants. If there are minors or the sick on board, they may disembark as it should be. All the others aboard a German ship leave Italian waters and go toward Germany, Salvini said. Humanitarian groups caring for the rescued migrants on four ships in the central Mediterranean have sounded the alarm about deteriorating conditions, including people sleeping on floors in the cold and spreading fevers. A German charity mission lifeline reported that its ship was in extreme danger with 95 rescued people on board. 
half of them women and children, and a bad weather forecast. Pianga Dosi drafted new measures contending the non-governmental groups violated procedure by not properly coordinating their rescues, setting the groundwork for Italy to close the ports. At the same time, Italian authorities continue to allow the arrival of people rescued at sea by Italian patrols, including 456 arriving in Calabria on Thursday and some 6,000 over the last week. Charities have denied circumventing procedures and say it's their duty to rescue people in distress at sea. According to the UN Refugee Agency, coastal states are obligated to accept people from rescue ships as soon as practical, and governments should cooperate to provide a place of safety for survivors. French Interior Minister Gerald Dominin said yesterday that international law is clear that Italy, as the closest port, must let the ship in. He cited the ocean Viking operated by the group SOS Mediterranean, which was one of the headquarters uh, of its uh, operation in France. We have no doubt that Italy will welcome the ship, that Italy will respect international law, he told the French news broadcaster BFM TV. He also said that France and Germany have told Italy that they are both ready to receive some of the migrants, so Italy won't bear the burden alone. With that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since that time, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at um, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for uh, Saturday, November 5th, uh, 2022, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
on the behalf of the board of the Elaine Legacy Center located in Elaine, Arkansas. I welcome you to this historic presentation by Julia Wright, daughter of Richard Wright, the author whose favorite uncle was lynched in Elaine, Arkansas back in 1916. We are proud to be partnering with Pyramid Books Arts Custom Framing of Little Rock. Welcome. Thank you, Evan. So tonight our special guests are Julia Wright, the elder daughter of Richard Wright and the executor of his estate. And she has practiced journalism in Africa, Europe, and the United States. A prison rights advocate, a poet, an essayist, she wrote the introductions to Richard Wright's A Father's Law and to, to Mumia Abu-Jamal's Death Blossom. She is currently writing a memoir in Southern Europe, and we're so excited to have you with us. Welcome, Julia. Our moderator this evening is the esteemed Reverend Judge Wendell Griffin. He's the pastor of New Millennium Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. He's a trustee of the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference and circuit judge for the fifth division of the sixth judicial circuit court of Arkansas. He has authored one book, The Fierce Urgency of Prophetic Hope. He's written three, he's worked with three internet blogs and regularly writes articles for publications concerning social justice, faith, and public policy. And we are glad to have both of you here today. And we are excited about the conversation that is in front of us. And it is very historic. And we welcome all of you. And I will turn it over to Judge Griffin. Thank you, Ms. Hearn. And welcome, everyone. Good evening, Ms. Wright. And thank you for gracing us with your presence and the honor of talking with you about your father's book, The Man Who Lived Underground. It is a tremendous uh, blessing to talk to you tonight, and especially it is momentous because this evening is the first anniversary of the murder of George Perry Floyd Jr., and so it is it is both momentous and it is sobering that we would be talking about this book, this prescient book that your father wrote in 1941. In 2021, on the first anniversary of the murder of George Floyd Jr. Thank you for talking with us. And I understand that you have in commemoration of this event and the first anniversary, you penned a poem. Yes, indeed. Would you share it with us? Oh, with pleasure. Uh, to Silas Huskins and George Floyd, uh, here's a quotation from Black Boy. Why had we not fought back? I asked my mother. On the first anniversary of the day when so very slowly, so very pleasurably, so cruelly yet ropelessly, George Floyd was lynched. I greet you, native sons and daughters of Arkansas, 
where my great uncle Silas Hoskins was so very invisibly, so very silently, so cruelly, yet filmlessly lynched. From one century to the next, we still hammer at the rock of white silence. We still pour water on the drunkenness of sick pleasure. We still offer the libation of our spared breath to say their names. We do not have a body for disappeared silence. So we will write on paper and hopefully on stone May 25th, a death date for all our unburied soldiers. Um, I'm very deeply moved to speak to you tonight, and so I think you may forgive me for uh, using my notes as a prop. Um, in one of his last letters to me, dated June 1960, my father wrote that he wished me well in all my endeavors, but he asked me to never estrange myself from the land that gave birth to him and molded him, his native South. And so it is a privilege to be with you here on his native soil, even virtually today. My parents had long prepared me to be the custodian of the man who lived underground. While my father was writing it in 1941, I was in my mother's womb. He was rehearsing fatherhood as the wife of his hero, Fred Daniels, was pregnant. And Fred Daniels is haunted by bodies of babies in the sewer. I was born alive. The book is my twin in more ways than one. And by getting this novel published, I truly feel I am my paper brother's keeper. Then I have another bond to the book. While he was writing it, Richard took an interest in a black prisoner sentenced to life without parole called Clinton Brewer. My father's idea was that creativity could redeem criminal impulses. And he was impressed by the fact that Clinton Brewer had taught himself jazz composition behind bars. Richard interceded with the governor of New Jersey, obtained Brewer's release, and took the prisoner home to where I lay 
newborn in my cot. And so human rights prison work is my unquiet legacy. In the late 90s and the first part of this century, I was helping my late mother, Ellen, with the estate in Paris and also freelancing as a journalist. After my father's centennial, I was toing and froing from Paris to death row in Pennsylvania, where I would visit Mumia Abu-Jamal, the award-winning black journalist who was maintained for three decades in solitary confinement for a crime he has always maintained he is innocent of. On my way to Pennsylvania's death row in those years, I would stay in cities like New York and Philadelphia, where the police shootings of unarmed black and brown people, as well as other vulnerable minorities, were daily events. I read about James Byrd's dismemberment as he was dragged behind a truck, a truck in Jasper, Texas. I heard of Abner Luima's sodomization by the police in New York and of Amadou Diallo's death shot down by 40 police bullets in the Big Apple. So when in July 2010, I went to Yale University to sift through my father's unpublished manuscripts, and I sat in the comfortable, secluded, air-conditioned calm of the Beinecke archives, where his papers are kept, the long version of the short story I knew so well jumped up at me like a time bomb. Why? Because it contained 50 hidden, censored pages describing in film-like detail the racist police violence against his black hero. And these pages were like a time machine, fast-forwarding the reader to all the suppressed videos of police brutality our families are trying to access today. To Darnella Frazier's courage. Bringing this work to light in its restored form is not only timely, it is a cure against the shock of the physical dismemberment suffered by all the James Byrds 
of our dark history. Back in the early 40s, before Emmett Till's lynching, before the civil rights movement, the uncut version of the book had been turned down, had been pushed underground because the white publishers felt those pages about torture committed by state-sanctioned white police officers against an innocent black man would be too, quote, uncomfortable, unbearable, unquote. In other words, too close to the truth. The original uncensored version has the same potentially healing impact as the video of the last long minutes of George Floyd's life has had on our nation. The reinstatement of the narrative of how too many of our lives end in the shadows. In the case of my great uncle Silas Hoskins, lynched in a lane, there was no date of death, no body, no restored narrative, simply disappearance. The Man Who Lived Underground is a book for today. It is a book for yesterday. It is a book for tomorrow. Is America ready to claim all its restored narratives yet? And in honor of the anniversary, the first anniversary of the lynching of George Floyd, here is a short poem I wrote last June for him. Rope choke. That unremembered, painful breath drawn when born from mama, you inhaled fiery air from the icy white world for the first time, that last everlasting breath withdrawn when calling for mama, you choked as long as it takes for a rope to rob you of your time. Thank you. Ms. Wright, you, as you mentioned, are a twin to the man who lived underground. It was written in 1941, the year you were born. And in 2010, you discovered that 
what had what had been released in 1941 as a short story was a full-length novel. Uh, how did you how did you find it? Well, I in the beginning of the story begins with my father's bookshelves. You know, my father didn't really want to talk about painful things with me, but he opened up his bookshelves to me. And that's how very early on, when I was 12, I read Black Boy for the first time. Found it very painful to read. And came across the short story you mentioned of the man who lived underground and loved it. And thought it was a mixture between a black Kafka story mm. or a black Edgar Allan Poe story. My father loved Edgar Allan Poe. Um, I just loved the story. But I didn't know that it had a beginning, and he never told me about that beginning. It was a total surprise. When you found the long version, how did you discover it? Well, you know, if you go to Beinecke, I don't know if you've been there, it's so comfortable. There are carpets there, it's air-conditioned, you're given gloves to handle the, you know, <laughs> I was given gloves to handle the photographs of myself taken by my father when I was young. Uh, it, it, it was a wrench, it's, it's a wrench to handle your own father's papers in a library, but I won't this, talk about that. And this, um, was at, this was at Yale. This was at Yale. And um, when I came across that long manuscript, I couldn't believe my eyes. And was, when, you, when you realized that the long manuscript had not been accepted for publication, that a publisher had actually rejected the manuscript, yes. how did you yes. feel? How did I feel? Yes, ma'am. Oh, I felt, can I say it? Angry. Uh, I knew that he had had to accept cuts in Native Son. Uh, later on, after the man who lived underground, he would have to accept um the second part of Black Boy to be cut out, mm. American Hunger. Um, it was white controlled publishing. 
And it was a double bind for black writers in those days. Uh, if you wanted to get published, you had to accept the cuts. So he's smiling today. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I imagine your father is in the ancestral realm saying, that's my girl, that's my girl. Uh, why did you think that this book needs to be published now? I'm almost embarrassed to ask the question, but uh, I think that it's important that people know the reason why you wanted this published now. It, you discovered the long manuscript in 2010. Uh, it's, it, it's an extraordinary book because it's as if he were... He, he was taking the lynchings he had written about in Uncle Tom's Children and he was fast-forwarding to the high-tech lynchings that are taking place today. And he's giving us a time machine in the form of a book. What do you think your father felt about the the deletion of the first 50 pages uh, that dealt with police brutality in The Man Who Lived Underground? Because the short version didn't have those 50 pages that are so graphic and so they're searing. Yes. Um, uh he has an early biographer, a French biographer, who wrote that he felt that my father didn't mind, quote, unquote. I beg to disagree. Mm. I think my father minded very much. But... um it's not that he had no choice. I think he decided to leave the United States because he was tired of seeing his writings dismembered. It was almost as if his writings were being lynched, even like the characters he wrote about. Absolutely. Absolutely. When... You mentioned that your father's 1941 manuscript often is actually fast forwards to the 21st century, the high tech. You're engaging in The Man Who Lives Underground, this novel. You're engaging the Black Lives Matter generation. You're engaging the generation that came of age with Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown Jr. and on this first anniversary, George Floyd. Uh, and there are those who say that this generation doesn't read books. They're into videos. Uh, do, what's your message to them about the man who lived underground? Well, I did hear that Native Son 
was number one book borrowed by black male prisoners in prisons. And Native Son was prescribed reading at one point in the Black Panther Party. I don't know what uh, the man who lived underground will be or become, but I wrote an, an email to my son the other day uh, that I believe the man who lived underground will become a classic. I will, you have me at a disadvantage because you're much more well read and written than I, but I will, I will share your estimation and I will go, I will, I will go this much. Just as Alex Haley's Roots was a classic, I, I believe that the man who lived underground will, may very well be a classic uh, in the same kind of way. Um, let me ask you, what, what impact do you think the restoration of those first 50 pages, those pages dealing with police brutality, and I keep going back to police brutality because that is a, that is a theme uh, and that runs throughout the, 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 the novel. Uh, what re the restoration of those first 50 pages do you think on the rest of the book of, of Fred Daniels, the hero's experience in the sewer? And I don't, want, I don't want to be a spoiler for those who haven't read the book, but I would like you to talk about that. Well, you know, that's why I think it's going to become a classic because every time I read the book again, I have a different take on it. Even I, <laughs> this time, I think that my father was trying to explore manufactured guilt. Mm -hmm. In other words, you know, planting the way those policemen were planting the seed of doubt in Fred Daniels' mind, uh, were trying to destroy his innocence, his inner sense of innocence. And that is so terrible. When one is innocent and somebody comes up to you and destroys that sense of innocence in you, you are changed forever. As you were speaking of that coerced sense of guilt, I reflected on the number of times that black people who have been lynched by the police, these what I call state-sanctioned executions yeah. by cops, when the police have come in question, one of the first things the media and police agencies do is begin to criminalize the victim. Uh, as opposed to point to the criminal behavior of the cop. Do you think that sense comes through in the man who lived underground? Yes, absolutely. That's, that's part of the whole um, 
frame up, what we call frame up. Um, they criminalize the victim and then the policemen play become the victims. So everything is turned upside down. The policemen are the victims of those who are criminalized. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's an upside down world. An upside down world indeed. I suppose I should ask, in another sense, do you think that the man who lived underground should be required leading, leading for all new police cadets? <laughs> I would love that. I think my father would will be laughing at this point. He won't be smiling. <laughs> yes. Well, if you will make the request, I'm sure that'll go a long way. And so I would like to encourage you to uh, encourage, request, insist, instruct, even demand that police agencies uh, read and distribute the men who lived underground to their training officers and to their new uh, recruits, as well as to the politicians who who give them immunity. (laughs) I think that is absolutely wonderful. Yes, I endorse. I would also add, I think you should also be required reading for more than a few judges who somehow never seem to understand that what police officers say about people confessing and about how people have been brutalized isn't always the truth, as we've learned from body cam footage. Yes, uh, I remember the judge who sentenced Mumia Abu-Jamal to death, uh, Judge Sable, called the sentencing judge because he uh, I think he was he he was the hanging judge the the person who sentenced the most people to death in the United States. He said, "I'm going to help them fry the nigger about Mumia." We are going to give some time for questions that. Uh, have been passed on to Anna Hearn to share with you to respond. And I want to do that, but I want to give you a chance to share anything else you want to share before uh, we open the floor to questions, because I want to make sure I have touched on things you want to talk about. Oh, okay. So right along, just, just, Exactly what you were saying, there are a few lines, we were t- you were touching on this, so I will read exactly what he said. The thoughts came to him so hard that he thought he had actually yelled them out, but he had not spoken. His teeth were clenched. The words had screamed inside of him, hot words, trying to burst through a tight wall. 
And again, he was overwhelmed with that inescapable emotion that always cut down to the foundations of life here in the underground, that emotion that told him that though he were innocent, he was guilty. Though blameless, he was accused. Though living, he must die. Though possessing faculties of dignity, he must live a life of shame. Though existing in a seemingly reasonable world, he must die a certainly reasonless death. Mm. Richard Wright, 1941, those words were written. They are as powerful in 2021 as they were when he wrote them. And they have especially powerful weight because you read them. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you. Thank you, Judge. Thank you very much. Uh, I want to yield now to Anna Hearn, who is, and Ms. Garbo Watson Hearn, who are going to introduce us to the questions that have been shared by the audience. Thank both of you for that powerful conversation. We have a question uh, for Julia. It says, what are your thoughts on the successful prosecution of Sheldon for George Floyd's murder? Um, I think that we must be very careful before we celebrate. Um, watching as a journalist, I was very careful to watch the context of um, his sentencing, and I noticed how many killings took place. The question is, is it backlash or is it because we're paying more attention to those killings? So that would be an open question for the moment. But there are many more killings today. I think it bears also worth remembering that Derek Chauvin almost was not prosecuted because the initial response of the Minneapolis prosecutor, and he made the public statement, was that there was some evidence that, that no crime had been committed. And the, and the first report from the Minneapolis Police Department was that there had been a medical incident, not a lynching. So it's, it's telling. It's telling that we get uh, we're on the first anniversary of the murder, and we've got a conviction. But we we have to remember, just as the 50 pages were excised from the man who lived underground. There was an effort to excise the criminality 
of what George Floyd suffered. And I think your father pushed that narrative in The Man Who Lived Underground quite well. So we have another question. We have another question. You read Black Boy when you were 12. Um, this audience member read it in high school. And today on the news, there are 12 state legislators working on laws to prohibit teaching of systemic racism in schools. Do you have thoughts about how this potential government censorship might impact access for young people to discover books like your father's? You know, my thoughts about censorship are very biased because I come from a family where there has been a lot of censorship uh, because my father went through the Cold War. Uh, my father was in the Communist Party before he left the Communist Party, and he was caught up in McCarthyism. Um, Censorship is a murderous, heinous, inhuman thing. Um, what can we do against censorship? We can do what Richard did, and that is go and find our own intellectual food outside of the boxes that are created for us. Um, outside of academics, outside of the schools, we have places to find these books, to lend them, and that's where the word of mouth and the word of book will grow. When so many legislators are trying to shut down studying about racism and so many public officials are denying the existence of systemic racism, mm -hmm. uh, do you think that the man who lived underground is going to help uh, push back against that effort. The man who lived underground is going to constitute a challenge because it is literature. It's not protest novel. It is magnificent literature. And if they are going to stand up against this type of literature, they're on losing ground. I, I, I heard you say that, and I thought the same people who never had a problem with the adventures of Tom Sawyer or the adventures of Huckleberry Finn or even Uncle Tom's Cabin had a problem with the man who lived underground being published in 1941. 
but we now know that the adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry, I had to read that, the adventures of Huckleberry Finn in high school, and I'm wondering if these people who are censoring will try to keep children from reading The Man Who Lived Underground in their schools and talking about it. If, if something is pushed under, it gives that book even more power. Okay. And I hope we can, I hope we can push it. <laughs> I know. You, thank you. Yes. Yes. We have a question. Will the first 50 pages of the literature from the original manuscript that was removed from the man who lived underground ever be for public viewing? Uh, public viewing in what sense? Um, mm, um, that was a question from the audience. So. Uh, uh, it, well, it's in the book. It's in the book. It's, uh, yes. Uh, what what other kind of public viewing do they want? Um, so another question is, is um, are there plans to create curricular materials for secondary educators who wish to teach the man who lived underground? And if so, who will do that work? Uh, I think Mary mentioned there was a guide already. I wasn't aware of that. Um, I'm, I'm not aware that there is a guide, but Mary had mentioned there is. Yes. Well, def definitely should be one. Um, yes. We have descendants of the victims of the Lane Massacre on the call with us tonight. And I wonder if your father ever discussed Elaine with you. Well, um, Garbo, as I told you, as, you know, I, I'm trying to make sense of his attitude. Um, and I'm writing this in my memoir. Um, he introduced me to Martin Luther King when Martin Luther King came through Paris. And I mentioned what happened. My father wanted to introduce racism to me from exile in a way that would not shock me and would enable me to analyze things and be strong about withstanding it. And I'm here today as a result of what he taught me. Um, he did not speak about things directly. He did it indirectly by opening up his library to me um, the first photographs of lynchings I ever saw were in 12 million black voices, which he wrote the text to. Uh, it was a federal writers, federal writers project book. Um, and 
that was, those were the first photographs of lynchings I, I saw in Paris. Another question, Paris is known for its concentration of black expatriates. Um, do you have any fond memories of other expatriates in France during your childhood that you'd like to share? Well, um, I'm very, <laughs> there's so much coming to my mind, I don't know what to say here. You know, I grew up in Paris during the Algerian War. Uh, France was at war with Algeria because Algeria wanted independence. And I'll always remember, uh, I used to be invited with my sister to the country house of my father's translator. And it was a very uh, well-to-do house because she was... Uh, social life. And um, one day I walked outside on the road and I was arrested. Uh, and uh, the police um, went, asked me where I lived and I said, oh, I'm visiting here in this house. And they said, we don't believe you. And I said, why not? And they said, well, we'll go and ask them about you. And they went to the house of my father's translator, and she was angry. And they told her, but she looks like an Algerian. How come you have such guests? That was in 1954. Mm -hmm. What other so, what other black expatriates can you recall running into while you lived in Paris? Because there were so many that were there during that time. Uh, um, my father knew um, Josephine Baker. Um, I don't know. Do you remember Ollie Harrington, uh, the creator of Bootsy, the cartoon? He was my father's friend. Uh, who else? Um, oh, lots of people. Lots of wonderful people. A Chester Himes. Yeah. Did your father ever cross paths with Baldwin? <laughs> we could talk a long time about Baldwin. <laughs> I, I'm devoting a whole chapter of my memoir to Baldwin, and the working title is Many Shades of Baldwin. Because uh, he had, there was a time where he adored my father, and there was another time where he attacked my father. And then after my father died, he was poignantly sorry. And I went to see him on his deathbed. I, I, are there another question, Ms. Brockman? Well, I, she sort of answered it already. Um, the listener says, since your father did not have a formal education in the traditional sense, um, who do you think 
the most influential sources were his development intellectually. Who do you think influenced him the most in his writing? That's a, such an enormous question for such a small person as me. Oh, uh, you know, all I can say is that in American Hunger, he talks about Mencken as the journalist who influenced him. He talks about Mark Twain. Um, he... Amongst the black authors, he liked uh, Fraser, Franklin Fraser's Black Bourgeoisie, a uh, great admirer of Frank, Franklin Fraser. Um, he wrote the introduction to Black Metropolis by, um, oh, help me here. Oh, I've got a block. St. Clair Drake? Yes, thank you. Who's helping me here? Me. <laughs> oh, okay, thank you, St. Clair Drake, yes. Horace Caton. Horace Caton was a wonderful friend of my father and wanted to write an auto, uh, a, a biography on my father and died before he could do that. And there's one other person I'd like to talk about, and that's the poet Langston Hughes, who was the last person to visit my father before my father went to the clinic where he died in Paris. One last question. Can you speak a bit about the meanings of a life underground, either in the novel or as Richard Wright might have applied it to black life more generally? Ooh. <laughs> these are, some of these questions are, I mean, you could write an essay on them. Uh, well, I was thinking about what Richard Wright's undergrounds biographically could be and I remembered that when he set fire to his house he hid underneath the house and that was his first underground because he was four years old right and um, he was like watching the world from beneath the house and hoping he wouldn't be seen and wouldn't be caught. So that's a whole experience there, which uh, Fred Daniels duplicates. Um, in memories of my grandmother, uh, my father also mentions, it's just one sentence, but I paid attention to it, uh, the undergrounds of the concentration camps. Because my mother was Jewish, and a whole maternal branch of my mother's family 
was wiped out in the camps, cremated. So in 1942, that was the year of the concentration camps. I was born in real time as my mother's family was being cremated. Um, I mean, you can go in all directions about undergrounds. You can think about underground railroads. You can think about the fact that when you go to the memorial, the lynching memorial, the ground slopes downwards. And what could this mean in terms of perhaps lynchings still being in the unconscious minds of our nation? Mourning our lynchings is still something that is repressed, that is still has to be accomplished, um, is still underground. There's so much in our culture that the notion of underground speaks to. I mean, many other things. Just one biographical fact that when he finished Native Son, my father underwent three or four uh, psychoanalytical sessions with a psychiatrist who was a friend. And he went into his own unconscious mind um, just considered as an underground. I mean, you can go in a lot of directions here. Well, thank you very much for your insights and the powerful questions. The audience, we've been wonderful. Thank you, uh, Reverend Judge Griffin, for your moderation tonight and honor. Um, thank you. We, we are going to continue to talk to you, Ms. Wright, yes. with the Richard Wright Summit. So I want to invite... Uh, Edlyn Marshall to come on and talk a bit about the summit coming up June 17th, which you will all get an invitation to. And also, if your questions were not answered, they will be answered. We will make sure that uh, Ms. Wright and Reverend Griffin get them, and we will get those answered and emailed to you. So, Edlyn, would you like to talk about the summit? Could you unmute yourself? You're muted. Okay. Okay. Now okay. There we. Thank yes. You. Thank you. <laughs> no so you problem. Yeah. Start over because we didn't hear anything you said initially. All righty. No problem at all. All right. So the first annual Richard Wright Summit, an international Zoom, leads us until June 10th. If you received a link for this gathering, you will be receiving an invitation to register for the summit. It begins on Thursday, June the 17th, at 6 p.m. Central Time. We are calling it Richard 
and Julia Wright, A Father-Daughter Legacy, Ending Capital Punishment. The Reverend Judge Wendell Griffin will again be moderating with his thoughts of provoking wisdom. Mark your calendars, June 17th, 6 p.m. until 7.30 p.m. So we'll have time for a few more questions. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that Thank with you. us. Thank you. And You're welcome. We are going to end tonight with letting you know how you can actually purchase the man who lives underground. And with our sessions, we always uh, share with our participants that we have a way. So if you're on this call tonight or on the Zoom, you have an opportunity to win the book. So Anna's going to share with us how we're going to do that. And thank you again, Julia, for having been in the audience. It's been amazing. It's almost 7.05. We want to be thoughtful of your time. This is a Tuesday night. Thank you very much. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All righty. So as we have done in our last couple of virtual book events, we do have the wonderful Wheel of Names. So if you stopped into the call today, your name is on here. So this is what I've been doing while everybody was talking is typing names into the wheel of names. So we'll give the wheel a spin and see who is going to win a copy of The Man Who Lived Underground. All right. And if you win it and you already have it, you can donate it to a high school or a library in your town. So. This session now, so let me call you back. Jennifer H., you won. All right. So, Jennifer H., whoever you are, please put your information in the chat, and we will make sure you get a copy of The Man Who Lived Underground. So, Julia, say goodnight. You get the last word. So, greetings to people of Arkansas, and I will be back. And I have been very moved tonight to be with you, and you know why. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome. We're excited to talk to you. So good night, everyone, and have a good rest of the week. And we'll see you June 17th. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Good night. And uh, that was an uh, extensive interview with uh, Julia Wright uh, on the recently released book that was released uh, just a year and a half ago of a novel uh, written by Richard Wright in 1941 that was rejected for publication entitled The Man Who Lived Underground. And the interview was with uh, Julia Wright, uh, her, his daughter, uh, who is also a writer and activist in her own right. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our next segment here at the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast.
Detroit's own Motown Sound, uh, the Four Tops, you keep running away, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Saturday, uh, November the 5th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank and welcome all of our listeners to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. The release uh, just uh, two weeks ago of the feature film Till, uh, depicting uh, the story of Emmett Till, the 14-year-old African-American youth from Chicago who was lynched uh, in uh, Tallahassee County, Mississippi, in August of 1955, is being portrayed um, in uh, is being uh, portrayed in this uh, film, and uh, we want to go back and examine the actual history of uh, the Emmett Till situation, and uh, this is uh, a archived uh, audio file featuring Ed Bradley, uh, who uh, for many years worked for CBS and 60 Minutes. Let's listen in. 60 Minutes Rewind. For many of you, the name Emmett Till may not sound familiar, but what happened to him in 1955 stunned the nation. Emmett Till was a young black boy who was murdered in Mississippi for whistling at a white woman, and his death was a spark that ignited the civil rights movement in America. Two white men were put on trial for killing him, but in spite of strong evidence against them, they were acquitted in about an hour by an all-white jury. Why are we telling you this now? Because this past spring, the U.S. Justice Department opened a new investigation based on evidence suggesting that more than a dozen people may have been involved in the murder of Emmett Till, and that at least five of them are still alive. Those five could face criminal prosecution. And before we tell you about them, let us tell you what happened to Emmett Till. He was 14 years old when he was kidnapped, tortured, and killed. The two men who were acquitted of his murder were Roy Bryant and his half-brother, J.W. Milan. The failure to punish anyone for the crime made headlines across the country and around the world, exposing the racial hatred and unequal justice for blacks that was pervasive in the segregated South, where laws dictated where blacks could eat and drink and where they could sleep. But Emmett Till wasn't from the South. He was from Chicago and just visiting relatives in Mississippi in August of 1955 when his nightmare began. Emmett's 16-year-old cousin traveled to Mississippi with him. The family was reluctant to let Emmett take the trip, afraid his free-spirited nature could get him into trouble in the Deep South. That cousin who traveled with him is Wheeler Parker, Jr., now 65 years old. He was a center of attraction. He loved pranks. He loved fun. He loved jokes. You know, he just was there in the center of everything. He was kind of a natural-born leader. Why would that be a problem? In Mississippi, why would it be a problem? <laughs> it would be a problem because uh, the Mississippians, what he thought was just fun or a joke, wasn't funny to them. So before you went down, did, did anybody say, look, here are the do's and the don'ts about going to Mississippi. You do this, you don't do that. Oh, yes, that's routine. You're always prepared to go to Mississippi to stay alive because, you know, once you got to Mississippi, you had no protection under the law. 
You couldn't call anyone for help once you were there if you got in trouble. For Emmett Till, the trouble started here at Bryant's Meat Market and Grocery Store in Money, Mississippi. Back then, most of the customers at this store were black workers from nearby cotton plantations. The store was owned by a white couple, Roy Bryant, and his 21-year-old wife, Carolyn, who was behind the counter the afternoon that Emmett Till and his cousins came in to buy some candy. As he was leaving the store, Emmett Till whistled at Carolyn Bryant, and she went to get a gun. Simeon Wright, Emmett Till's cousin who lived in Mississippi, was 12 years old on that day when they went to Bryant's grocery store. Today, at 62, he says the sound of Emmett whistling is as vivid to him now as it was 50 years ago. When he whistled, we all, we ran, we jumped in the car, and we got out of there. Just because he whistled? Oh, yes. It's, it's like if, you, if you're a kid, you throw a rock and break a window. You don't hang around to see what's going to happen. And you knew that in Mississippi, at that time, 1955, that was something you didn't do. That was something you didn't do. Emmett Till and his cousins raced home that day and hoped nothing would come of what Emmett had done. But three days later, Carolyn Bryant's husband, Roy, and his half-brother, J.W. Milam, went looking for Emmett Till in the middle of the night and found him and his cousins at the home of Reverend Mose Wright, Emmett's late great-uncle, who recounted what happened next. Sunday morning, about 2.30, uh, I heard a voice at the door, and I asked, who was it? And they said, this is Mr. Bryant. I want to talk with you and the boy. And when I opened the door, there was a man standing with a pistol in one hand and a flashlight in the other. Emmett Till and Simeon Wright, Moe's Wright's son, were asleep together in one room, and Wheeler Parker was in another room, awakened by the sounds of angry voices. Fear just gripped me because in my heart I said, I'm getting ready to die. And at 16, I wasn't ready to die. And I could just feel like the whole bed was shaking. And in the, these guys come with the pistol in one hand and the flashlight in the other. And for some reason, I closed my eyes and I opened them and they just passed right on by me, went to the next room. I woke up and I, I, I looked. I saw two men standing over the bed with the one had a gun, which was J.W. Milan. I saw uh, Roy Bryant. They ordered me to lay back down and go back to sleep. And they ordered Emmett to get up and put his clothes on. And my mother was pleading and begging with him not to take him. My dad was pleading with him. And, and my mother then at that time offered to, uh, to give them money to leave uh, Emmett alone. And Roy Bryant kind of hesitated, but J.W. Milan, he, he didn't hesitate at all. He didn't even think about taking money. He came there to take Emmett, and that's what he proceeded to do. Before taking Emmett Till out of the house, Simeon Wright says J.W. Milam threatened his father, Reverend Mose Wright. Before they left my room, he turned and asked my daddy how old was he. My daddy told him that he was 64, and J.W. Milam said, if you tell anybody about this, you won't live to get 65. Well, what did you think then? This man wasn't afraid of the law. Here he marched into my home, take out my cousin, and wasn't afraid the law was going to bother him. This must have been terrifying for you. I mean, you were just, you weren't 13 yet. You were no, 12 no. years old. 12 years old. 
lying in bed in the middle of the night, two white men come in, one with a gun, and tells your cousin to get up and get dressed? Yes, yes. I'd have been scared to death. Not only afraid, but there was a, a, a sorrow, a sadness over the whole house. Looked like. It looked like you could, you could cut the grief in the, in the house. Because after they left, no one said anything, Harley. All I could hear my dad say was, mm, mm, mm. On August 31st, 1955, three days after he'd been abducted, Emmett Till's mangled body was found by a boy fishing in the waters of the Tallahatchie River not far from Money. His body had been weighted down by a 75-pound fan from a cotton gin attached to his neck by barbed wire. He'd been badly tortured. An eye was detached, an ear cut off, and he appeared to have been shot in the head. His death was the birth of a powerful and lasting symbol of Southern racism in the 20th century. The local sheriff, H.C. Strider, a plantation owner and ardent segregationist, tried to have the body buried immediately in this small cemetery in Money, Mississippi, hoping no one in the outside world would ever find out what happened to Emmett Till. But Emmett's mother, Mamie, battled with Mississippi authorities and was able to have her son's body returned to Chicago so she could identify him before she buried him. Mamie Till was determined never to let anyone forget the brutal way in which her son was killed. She described the chilling story in one of the final interviews she gave before her death last year at age 81. I looked at the bridge of his nose, and it looked like someone had taken a meat chopper and chopped it. And I looked at his teeth because I took so much pride in his teeth. His teeth were the prettiest things I'd ever seen in my life, I thought. And uh, I only saw two. Well, where are the rest of them? that just been knocked out. And I was looking at his ears, and that's when I discovered a hole about here, and I could see daylight on the other side. I said, now, was it necessary to shoot him? Some 50,000 people, nearly all of them black, turned out for Emmett Till's funeral in an enormous public display of grief and solidarity. Mamie Till ordered the funeral director to place her son in an open casket and permitted this shocking photograph of Emmett's corpse, which was published in Jet Magazine and seen across the country. The group. It ignited protests, civil disobedience, and backlash that would consume the South through the 60s. I said, I want the world to see this. Because when people saw what had happened, to this little 14-year-old boy, they knew then that not only were men, black men, in danger, but black children as well. The same day that Emmett Till was buried, Roy Bryan and J.W. Milam were indicted on charges of kidnapping and murder. Their trial was held in the small Mississippi town of Sumner, billed as a good place to raise a boy. The star witness was Emmett Till's late great-uncle, Mose Wright, who bravely stood up in the courtroom and pointed his finger at Milam and Bryant 
as the ones who had come to his home and abducted Emmett Till at gunpoint. Another key witness was an 18-year-old sharecropper named Willie Reed, who said that on the morning after Emmett Till was abducted, he saw Emmett on a truck with six people, Roy Bryant, J.W. Milam, two other white men, and two black men who worked for Milam. Soon after, Reed said he saw the same truck parked in front of a barn managed at the time by Milam's brother and heard the screams of a young boy he presumed was Emmett Till. Today at age 67, Reed says he still cannot get those sounds out of his mind. I heard the screaming, beating, screaming, and beating. And I said to myself, I said, you know, I said, man, them beating somebody in that barn. I can hear this beating. I, can hear, I mean, the licks, I can hear the licks. You, you could hear the licks. Yes, you could. You could. According to Willie Reed and another witness, four white men came out of the barn, including Milam, who walked right up to Reed carrying a 45 caliber pistol. Milam was coming out of the barn, so he actually said, listen, said, uh, did you all hear anything? And I said, no, I haven't heard anything. Why would you say that? I mean, you had heard something. You had heard screaming. You had heard somebody being beaten. Yeah, I saw somebody being beaten. But then you see Milan come on with, well, like I said, with khaki pants on and a green shirt and 45 on his side. Then he asked you, man, what you going to say? You didn't hear anything. I didn't hear anything. You knew that's what he wanted to hear. Right. When they found the body, did you put two and two together and think that what you had heard going on in that barn, that that was Emmett Till? I'm sure. I was sure then. I was sure then. Fearing for his life after testifying against Milam and Bryant, Willie Reed was smuggled out of Mississippi. He went to Chicago, where he suffered a nervous breakdown and was hospitalized. You're a good man. You had a lot of courage for an 18-year-old. I think there are a lot of people who would have walked away from it. Wouldn't have said a word. No, I, I, uh, I couldn't... I couldn't have walked away from that like that because uh, Emmett was 14, probably never been to Mississippi in his life, and he come to visit his grandfather, and they killed him. I mean, that's not right. I saw when they when they in the picture, they saw his 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 um, body, what it was like. Then I knew that I couldn't say no. As the trial drew to a close, attorneys for J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant warned the all-white jury that if they voted to convict, quote, your forefathers will turn over in their graves. It took the jury just an hour and seven minutes to return a verdict of not guilty. One juror said it wouldn't have taken that long, but they stopped to take a soda pop break to make it look good. Milam and Bryant were congratulated by their many supporters and kiss their wives in celebration. How do you folks feel now that it's all over? Roy, how about you? I'm just glad it's over with. Four months after the trial, knowing that double jeopardy protected them from being tried again, Roy Bryan and J.W. Milam admitted to a reporter from Look Magazine that they had, in fact, tortured and murdered Emmett Till. They were paid $4,000 for their story. In it, Milam said... I just made up my mind. Chicago boy, I said, I'm tired of them sending your kind down here to stir up trouble. Damn you, I'm going to make an example of you. Emmett Till's family has had to live with that for nearly 50 years, that his killers confessed and 
Nothing ever happened to them. Now, with a new government investigation underway, Simeon Wright hopes someone will finally be held accountable for the murder of his cousin. J.W. Mott and Roy Bryant confess that they killed Emmett. The people of the state of Mississippi said they didn't. We need to reconcile that statement, and we need to send a message to those who are committing crimes against blacks like this that you can get by, but you can't get away. That justice eventually is going to find you. When the U.S. Justice Department announced recently that it was opening a new investigation into the 1955 murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till, it said the case was a, quote, grotesque miscarriage of justice and that it is examining evidence pointing to the possible involvement of more than a dozen people in the crime. Roy Bryan and J.W. Milam, who were tried and acquitted, are dead, but a number of others are still alive and could face criminal charges for their role in Emmett Till's abduction, beating, murder, and attempts to cover it up. The Justice Department says it is largely because of this young man that the case has been reopened. His name is Keith Beauchamp, an amateur filmmaker from Louisiana. Like a lot of people in this country, he was moved by the shocking photograph of Emmett Till's corpse that he saw while looking through old magazines when he was just 10 years old. And ever since, Beauchamp has devoted much of his life to uncovering the truth about what happened to Emmett Till. After seeing the photograph, it shocked me tremendously. And um, when Paris came in and sat me down and, and explained to me at that time the story of Emmett Till, and it hit me hard. It really hit me hard. I heard the same story. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember seeing this picture in that Jet magazine when I was a kid. I think Emmett Till and I were probably about the same age in 1955, 14 years old. And growing up in, in Philadelphia, you knew vaguely about the South. But like others, my parents had protected me from the realities of the South. When I saw that picture and I said, hey, that's when I got my first lesson about the South. Everyone has a story when they first saw that photograph. It stuck with me that how could this person um, be killed this way, um, a youth, you know, that was like me. It was amazing to me that something like that could happen. Keith Beauchamp told us that after reviewing thousands of old documents and talking to numerous witnesses with knowledge of the crime, he believes that at least 14 people may have been involved in the kidnapping and murder of Emmett Till, and that five of them are still alive. You describe much of this to, to federal and, and state investigators? Absolutely. And their reaction to that information? Their reaction was overwhelming. They couldn't believe that a person this young would be so interested in, in finding out the truth. I guess they were really stunned that I did so much research on this case. So was Senator Charles Schumer, a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which has oversight of the Justice Department. After meeting with Keith Beauchamp and his attorney, Ken Thompson, and examining the research Beauchamp was gathering for a documentary film he was working on, Senator Schumer urged the department to reopen the Emmett Till case saying it was never fully investigated 50 years ago. How would you characterize the conduct of the federal law enforcement agencies, the 50 years of this? Well, okay. federal law enforcement back then and even many years later reflected the attitude of America. Oh, these things happen. This is how it is down there. 
it is a stain and will be a stain on both the Mississippi law enforcement officials and the United States federal government justice department that it took a young filmmaker to bring to light what they should have brought to light. In 1955, Emmett Till's mother, Mamie, tried to get her government to bring the truth to light. She sent a telegram to President Dwight Eisenhower urging that justice be meted out to all persons involved in the beastly lynching of her son. In spite of FBI records and news reports at the time citing specific individuals, President Eisenhower didn't take any action. Emmett Till's mother died before the government reopened the case this past spring, a case based largely on the research of Keith Beauchamp. Among his discoveries was Henry Lee Loggins, now 81 years old and living in Ohio. At the time of the murder, Loggins was working for J.W. Milam. FBI files from 1955 refer to witnesses who claim they saw Loggins on the truck with Emmett Till after he was abducted. One respected black newspaper at the time even reported that Loggins allegedly held Emmett Till down as Milam and Bryant tortured him. Loggins was also reportedly ordered by them to attach the fan from a cotton gin around Till's neck just before tossing him into the Tallahatchie River. Henry Lee Loggins is now under investigation by the Justice Department. When we talked to him recently, he denied the allegations that have dogged him for half a century. I wouldn't say he didn't tell a lie. I wasn't with them people. I, I saw nothing. How do you think your name came up? I mean, not just in newspaper articles, but also with the FBI. Why did people say that Henry Lee Loggins was there? I, I can't figure that out. I, I couldn't figure that out to the date. Henry Lee, how do you explain all these stories that just won't go away? Such as, such as what? Such as you were there on the back of the truck. Which I wasn't. That you participated in the in the abduction, the kidnapping, and the murder of Emmett Till. Which I wouldn't. That you tossed his body in the river. Which I wouldn't. What's your name? Ed. Ed. Mr. Ed, I wouldn't say anything until you no lie. I don't know nothing about that case. What are you going to do when the FBI comes knocking I'll tell them the same thing, that I wasn't there. And that's them too. Lord, no, I wasn't there. Five other black men, now dead, have also been implicated in some way in the abduction and murder of Emmett Till. If any of the allegations are true, the question is why. Knowing now that black men could possibly have been involved, I just keep thinking, you know, about what could have been going through Emmett Till's mind, you know, seeing this. And how do you explain that, that, that well, we know they would that turn they, on one of their own? We believe that they were forced to participate in the crime. It was going to either be them or Emmett Till. It was shocking at first because for so long you've heard, you know, white men were involved and that's, that was it. It was a, a white and black man. You can help but, you know, be amazed. It seems clear that black men were involved. Emmett Till's late great-uncle Mose Wright said there was a black man on the porch when J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant came to take Emmett Till. He also said he heard a woman's voice that night coming from a truck parked outside. He believed it was Roy Bryant's wife, Carolyn, the woman Emmett Till had whistled at several days earlier inside her husband's grocery store in Money, Mississippi. Mose Wright's son, Simeon, Emmett's cousin, says his father told him the same thing. 
Oh, yes. It's, it was uh, another man standing on the porch. My dad talked about it. There was uh, another person in the truck because when they marched Emmett out to the truck and they asked the person inside the truck, is this the one? My dad said he heard a woman's voice identifying Emmett as the boy that did the whistling. So that must have been Brian's wife, Mr. Brian? At that time, we believed it was uh, Brian's wife. And after 48 and some odd years, there's nothing has arisen to dispel that uh, belief. Apparently, the local authorities back then believed it, too. And according to FBI communiques, issued an arrest warrant for Carolyn Bryant on suspicion of kidnapping. But she was never arrested or charged. Today, we've learned that Carolyn Bryant is a focus of the Justice Department's new investigation, suspected of having assisted her husband Roy and J.W. Milam in the abduction of Emmett Till. She was divorced in 1979 and has since remarried and moved several times. She had all but disappeared from public view until we found her, now age 70, and known as Carolyn Dunham, living in Greenville, Mississippi. While our cameraman was able to take these pictures of her, when I went to her house, she wouldn't answer the door. Moments later, her son, Frank Bryan, arrived, and we tried to talk to him. Can we talk to Mrs. Dunham? Can you talk to me? Can I tell you get her to come out? No. I have some questions I'd like to ask her about Emmett Till. Okay. I'm sorry? It's too bad. Will she come out and talk to us? Why don't I just hear you? Tell me again. No. She won't? No. She's back. I'm back? Goodbye. Goodbye. Yes. You're leaving? Yes. We called the house later in the day, and neither Frank Bryant nor his mother Carolyn would discuss the Emmett Till case any further. We've learned that the Justice Department could complete its investigation within a year, and criminal charges against at least five people could follow. But the Justice Department and the FBI declined to comment. What would justice be in this case? In my opinion, there ought to be a full trial, and if there are convictions, even though the people are old who did it, they ought to go to jail. While that may finally bring a measure of justice to the family of Emmett Till, it also brings back the pain. These memories are still sharp after 50 years. Oh, yes. I'll never go away. I'm, I'm still saying, how could that happen? Why would anyone hate anyone to beat him, to kill him, and to, to torture him like that. How, how can a human being do that to another? All because of a whistle. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the late uh, Ed Bradley uh, in that uh, pioneering report uh, from 2004 who actually went and found uh, Carolyn Bryant, uh, who had fingered uh, Emmett Till for her husband and brother-in-law. Uh, who lynched him um, the following morning. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Today is Saturday, November the 5th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, we're going to listen to a segment uh, of another uh, cold case during this period, uh, some nine years later, uh, Lewis Allen. Uh, who was an activist in the state of Mississippi, was also uh, killed uh, by racists. Let's listen in. 
60 Minutes Rewind. Five years ago, the FBI announced that it was reopening more than 100 unsolved murder cases from the civil rights era of the 1950s and 60s. The goal of the Cold Case Initiative was to try and mete out justice in what seemed to be racially motivated killings that were never prosecuted. Not many 50-year-old cold cases ever get solved. Memories fade, evidence is lost, witnesses and suspects die or disappear. But that's not the case in the death of Lewis Allen, a mostly forgotten but historically significant murder that helped bring thousands of white college students to Mississippi in the Freedom Summer of 1964. The murder is still unsolved, but the case has never quite gone away because the chief suspect is very much alive and walking the streets of a town called Liberty. Liberty, Mississippi is a small rural logging town not far from the Louisiana border. The FBI believes that some people here have been keeping a dark secret for nearly 50 years from one of the ugliest periods in the state's history. It was a time when civil rights activists were beaten and arrested, when state and local politics were controlled by all-white citizens' councils, and when people like Lewis Allen were murdered in cold blood without redress. You keep a photo of Lewis Allen on your desk? I do. What? The case bothers me. I feel like we failed, and not just the FBI, but law enforcement. Cynthia Deedle is a 15-year veteran of the FBI's Civil Rights Division and until a few weeks ago was in charge of the Cold Case Initiative. Of the 100 unsolved, racially motivated murders she's been charged with investigating, none has been more promising or frustrating than Lewis Allen's. Somebody knows something. Some husband came home with bloody clothing. Someone got drunk in a bar and said what he was doing last night. Someone knows something. But in the early 1960s, people in and around Liberty knew to keep their mouths shut. A violent chapter of the Ku Klux Klan used cross-burnings, abductions, and murder to enforce the doctrine of white supremacy and to intimidate the black population, most of which lived in shacks with no electricity or plumbing and were not allowed to vote. Civil rights leaders like Robert Moses, who came south to help them register, were frequently the target of violence. Liberty was not a place that I liked to go. Why? Because it was a place where you weren't safe if you were doing voter registration work. It was in Liberty that Moses met Lewis Allen, a rough-hewn World War II veteran who walked proud and was not afraid to stand up for himself. He ran a small timber business, was one of the few blacks in Liberty to own his own land, and always wore a hat, which he considered a sign of self-respect. He was not the type to seek out trouble. Robert Moses says it found him. He was at the wrong place at the wrong time. He saw something that happened, and he was deeply disturbed and affected by that. And so he had a, a basic life decision to make. On September 25, 1961, Allen was walking past this old cotton gin when he saw something that likely got him killed. Lewis Allen witnessed a powerful state legislator by the name of E.H. Hurst shoot and kill an unarmed black man named Herbert Lee. Allen told his friends and family that he and other eyewitnesses had been pressured into lying about the shooting, into saying that it was self-defense. Later, Allen decided that he needed to tell the truth. One of the people Lewis Allen told it to was Julian Bond, 
who is trying to register black voters in Mississippi for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He would later become a legendary civil rights leader. This was not a self-defense action uh, by the state representative. This was out-and-out out murder. That's all it was. But Lewis Allen agreed to lie about that. Why do you think he lied? He lied because he was in fear of his life. If he had implicated a powerful white man in a murder of a black man, that he was risking his life. Did you encourage him to tell the truth? I tried to encourage him to tell the truth, but, I, you know, it was like saying, why don't you volunteer to be killed? But Allen's wife would later testify that his conscience was clipping him, and he decided to tell FBI agents and the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights what really happened at the cotton gin. This document from FBI files says Allen changed his story and expressed fear that he might be killed. He asked for protection, but none was provided. Almost immediately, word began circulating in Liberty that Lewis Allen was prepared to change his testimony. He was threatened um, as a result of the fact that he was going to change his statement, that he did change his statement. And the FBI was notified of those threats? Yes. Did the FBI do anything? Yes. We referred that to local law enforcement authorities. It's certainly possible to conclude the local law enforcement people were the ones behind the threats. There is a theory out there that, that speaks to that, yes. In fact, it's been the prevailing theory for some time, although the FBI cannot officially confirm it. There is a 1961 reference in the FBI file to a report that Allen was to be killed and the local sheriff was involved in the plot to kill him. And we found this 1962 letter from Robert Moses to Assistant Attorney General John Doerr alleging the same thing. They're after him in a mid county, it says, and makes reference to a plot by the sheriff and seven other men. He was afraid of the sheriff's department. I think he was, yes. And I think he was afraid of the Klan, although they seem to be sort of the same thing in Liberty at this time. I'm not sure I can say that. Julian Bond was less circumspect. The law enforcement, you were suspected they were members. If you wanted to be a mayor, a city councilman, a county commissioner, or the sheriff, if you wanted to be in the legislature, you had to have some connection with the Klan. And in the Amit County Sheriff's Department, the person with the best connection was Deputy Sheriff Daniel Jones. His father was the exalted Cyclops of the local Klan, and Jones himself, according to this FBI document we found, was suspected of being a Klan member. Jones, who's alive and still resides in Liberty, was recently visited by FBI agents who wanted him to take a lie detector test. What was he like? Well, mean. Hank Allen was 17 years old when his father was killed, and he remembers Daniel Jones as his main tormentor. He says he watched Jones harass and repeatedly arrest his father on trumped-up charges, and one night beat him outside their home. And uh, he had handcuffed him, told him he was under arrest, so Dad asked for his hat. Told Dad, no, you can't go get your hat. Dad said, well, Dad, my son is on the porch. Can he bring me my hat? He drove back. He took a flashlight, and he struck my dad and broke his jawbone, handcuffed. When he got out of jail, Lewis Allen did something that was unheard of for a black man in Mississippi. He went to the FBI and lodged a complaint against Deputy Sheriff Jones and testified before a federal grand jury. The case was thrown out, and the situation in Liberty continued to deteriorate. They stopped selling daddy gas in the town. They stopped buying his logs. They just more or less just tried to blackball him. It got to the point, the harassment and just him not being able to survive in Liberty, that he decided to leave and to go work in another state. 
and it's the night before he is due to leave that he is killed. Lewis Allen was ambushed here on a cold night in January 1964 after getting out of his truck to open the cattle gate that led to his property. His son, Hank, was the one who found it. I didn't know why he would park the truck in the middle of the driveway and leave it like that. Mm -hmm. And I climbed up in the truck. The headlights was real dim. And when I went to step down out the truck, I stepped on something. And that's when I stepped on my, my, my daddy's hand. Uh, he was lying up under the truck. He was killed with two blasts of deer shot to the head. The investigating officer was none other than the newly elected sheriff, Daniel Jones, who Hank said made it clear to the family why his father had been murdered. He told my mom that if Lewis had just shut his mouth, that he wouldn't be laying there on the ground. He wouldn't be dead. You think Sheriff Jones did it? Yes, indeed. By all means. If he didn't do it, he was the entrepreneur of it. Jones told the newspapers he was unable to find a single clue. How would you characterize the investigation that Sheriff Jones conducted? He did not develop any fingerprints, any physical evidence, and he never developed any suspects. Not a great investigation. Probably could have done more. In fact, it's not clear that anyone investigated Lewis Allen's murder until 1994, when Plater Robinson, an historian at the Southern Institute at Tulane University, began digging into it. From day one in Liberty, people told me that Daniel Jones and a colored man killed Lewis Allen. Robinson has spent 17 years combing through archives and tracking down people to interview. One of them was an elderly preacher named Alfred Knox. Knox told Robinson in a 1998 tape-recorded conversation that his son-in-law, Archie Weatherspoon, was with Sheriff Daniel Jones when Allen was murdered. My son-in-law went with him. To yeah. kill Lewis Allen? To kill Lewis Allen. He didn't know where he was going until he got in the car. And he said, uh, will you pull the trigger? Will you shoot him? He said, no, I'm going to do it. That's what my son-in-law said. I ain't going to shoot him. Uh, you come out and kill him, you kill him. So he killed him. Both Knox. Welcome back. And... um that will conclude uh, this week's uh, Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. And uh, we're going to uh, sign off. But if you'd like to have access to our program, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're closing out uh, with uh, the legendary Kenny Burrell uh, with uh, the tune from the album entitled Midnight Blue. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.